we have ended a sermon series on the seven churches of the book of Revelation in which we talked about stop overthinking things. And we're going into a new sermon series and it's based on the book of Joshua. And so if you want to be up to date with this study, all you need to do is read Joshua a number of times over the summer. And the more you read it, the more you become familiar with it, the easier it's going to be to follow some of the things that we're talking about. We also have started a short four-week study that our pastoral intern, Ezekai Rashito, leads. Regina and I attended it this last week. It is wonderful. We will be there each Thursday. It meets from 7 till 8 o'clock. It meets in the conference room number two down, the fellowship, down towards the fellowship hall. It gives you background for this sermon series. It's only a four-week study, so there's three more times. They're all standalone sessions. We would love to have more people come and participate. In that, we're looking at Moses' life because Moses is the one who is the forerunner of Joshua. But if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 that we will be looking at this morning as we begin embarking on the story of Joshua and the taking of the children of Israel across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. I'd like to begin by saying in a recent study, it showed that when doctors tell heart patients that they will die if they don't change their habits, think about that, doctor sits before someone and says, you need a lifestyle change, and this is exactly what you need to do in order to live. Only one in seven are able to follow through successfully. Hear those numbers? Only one in seven. That means that fear may be a strong emotion, but it is not a motivator for change. Now, people can change, and God can change us, but it's not by being afraid of something and saying, oh my goodness, I want to avoid that, that change is going to take place. You see, we want success in our life, amen? We want to be God-loving Christians who make a difference in this world and lead meaningful lives, but we often find ourselves drifting. Amen? That's what we do. That's why sloth is one of the seven deadly sins. I like that word, sloth. When I'm, like, not doing what I should be doing, I say to myself, Stan, you're being slothful again. It sort of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? And that's what happens, is God wants to bring about changes in our life, and that's why we're calling this entire summer, go, go exclamation point, go. No fear of failure, no sense that, We can't do what God wants us to do. And so this spring, we examined stop overthinking it. Now we're going to be talking about the concept of go. Now you may ask the question, go where? Or go and do what? At which point you are overthinking it, so I refer you back to our last sermon series. Yes, this summer we will simply be looking at go. Could I have somebody turn those two fans off over there? I just keep losing my notes, and I will not be able to concentrate on a message. I will just keep playing catch with the paper. It's actually the two on the dial over there, the black, nope, up front here. There you go, right in front of you, up, yep, left, all the way. Turn them both all the way to the left. Awesome. 
It's like the old question, who's the most important person in a church on a Sunday morning? That would be the sound man or sound woman. Without them, you don't hear anything the pastor has to say. The same thing is true when the fans blow the sermon away. Yes, this summer we will be talking about go. Go. Joshua and Caleb, help us to see what it means to go. I want to give a little bit of background of our summer sermon series. Because some of this we forget. We sort of think we know this story of the children of Israel 40 years in the wilderness, but when we actually rehear it, sometimes we realize it's different than what we thought. The children of Israel had been taken captive in Egypt, and they've lived in captivity. And along comes Moses, who's going to deliver them. And he leads them, parts the Red Sea, leads them into the desert, and they go all the way to the Promised Land. They end up right at the Jordan River. And now when they get to the Promised Land, God says, go. This is your new homeland. It is not God's desire for you to live in captivity. You're not supposed to be slaves. You're supposed to be able to embrace life and have your own homes and raise your families and practice your faith. They send in spies, kind of like we do. Oh, if God wants me to do something, what's it going to look like? They send in 12 spies. Those 12 spies go in for 40 days, and they look at the land, and they come back with a report. Two of the young men, Joshua and Caleb, say, it's awesome. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. God wants us to take the land. Let's go in and let's establish our homes. But 10 older men... Kind of sounds like what happens in the church a lot of time. You know, young people have great ideas. Let's move forward. And the rest of us start overthinking it. The, 12, the 10 older men say, no. There are large cities in there. Big walls. Giants. Why, the people are taller than we are. They're so large, we look like grasshoppers. So what ends up happening? Instead of going in and embracing and taking the land, the ten older gentlemen convince everyone else to act out of fear, and they wander in the desert for 40 years. They literally go round and round in circles and don't do anything until that older generation completely dies off. Isn't that like our lives sometimes? God tells us to do something, to move forward, to embrace something, a change, a, a new situation, a new opportunity comes for us. We look, we see the opportunity, we see what God has for us, and we see that it's good. And then all of a sudden, fear sets in and takes over. I was 19 years old, and I was involved with a campus ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ at Moorhead State University. And in our ministry, I discovered a new form of worship. I'd never experienced it. I came from a little rural Methodist church where all we had is a piano or an organ or a piano and organ together, and we sang out of the hymnal, and all of a sudden, we were singing new music. And if that wasn't enough, I got invited with a friend to go visit a new church near Chicago. It was called Willow Creek. It was meeting in a movie theater at the time. And I got all excited that, wow, here is the future of, of ministry and, and worship and where God is leading the church. And then my dad, who was a pastor of the Holmes United Methodist Church in rural North Dakota, was going away on vacation, and I was home for vacation over the summer, and he asked me if I would like to preach. It was a great opportunity. 
said, I'd love to preach. So I went right to the organist, and I gave her a week off. I set my stereo up behind the altar. I made sure nobody could see it there. I even brought my guitar, and I had somebody sitting behind the, the altar ready to play the music during the service, and we got through a whole worship service. The record only skipped a couple of times. I thought it went pretty well. I even had a few families who came to me and told me they loved it. Some others were ambivalent. And a few other families said to me, I'm going to tell your dad if you ever pull off something like that again, you're never preaching in this church. That was 1979. Fear gripped me. I decided that maybe it wasn't such a good idea after all. The next time I did anything with contemporary music in a church was 2005. Stopped dead in my tracks as a young man. This summer, we're going to be talking about learning to go, to move forward, to realize we are going to get resistance in life. We're going to have people who are going to be ambivalent. We're going to have others who are going to be positive, and our own fears are going to hit us from time. But we do not need to wander for 26 years as I did, or 40 years like the children of Israel. This summer, we're going to learn what Joshua and Caleb said when in Numbers 13.30, they returned from looking at the land, and they said these words, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome. Those are our words, folks. We can sit and we can talk about all the problems in our society and our world as long as we want to, but we are Christians who are asked to live by faith. And our marching orders are given to us in Numbers 13.30. Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome. Forty years of wandering is not necessary. And in your life and my life, if we find ourselves wandering, it's never too late. We do not need to let those negative voices or those doubters or those thoughts that get between our two ears take control of our lives. This morning, God invites us to go. Joshua 1, verses 8 and 9. This book of the law, Joshua says, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and be courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You see, God did not ask Joshua to do something crazy. He didn't ask him to give away his mind and to follow some ridiculous scheme that was never going to work out. God asked Joshua to lead the children of Israel into their homeland where they could live lives of people of faith, to establish their homes, to establish godly communities, to be people who could worship and teach their children what it meant to follow God, and ultimately to be a light to the nation. And in our lives, when God has a call on your life and my life, God's calling us to do things that make our lives better, our families better, our communities better, and the world better. Amen? That's what God calls us to do. The thing is, we need to go. And yet it begins with having the right plan. 
The problem sometimes is, is we don't really know where we're headed, and we don't have a plan, and so we don't know how to get there. That's why we began with verse 8. The plan is really laid out as Joshua, by the time that he has come on the scene, remember Moses has passed away, the children of Israel are now, after 40 years, standing at the Jordan River, ready to go across into the land of Canaan, and that means we already have the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And Joshua, holding those scriptures, says, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Having the right plans makes all the difference. And in our lives, for us to understand the plans that God wants us in our lives, we need to begin with scripture. We need to know God's word. I'm going to tell you what I've told the other congregations that have been worshiping here this weekend. We have little devotionals on the welcome table as you leave this morning. If you're not reading a daily bread or upper room or receiving the encouraging words to have a Christian meditation each day in your life, please pick one up and start doing it every day and start learning to read the scriptures and finding a faith group to get involved with because it's only by God transforming our minds with scripture that we start to understand the plans and how God would have us live our lives. Paul put it this way. He said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you can know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It begins by understanding Scripture, by understanding that God has a way for us to live our lives. Now, I've been telling people that we are ending and have closed down our other site over in Duxbury, and that means that we've had three dumpsters that have been filled up with stuff that we had to get rid of. We've had other people who have been taking items and sending items home with people, and there's some things that we're moving over here to the Plymouth campus. But this last week, I was over in Duxbury, and in one of the rooms, I had a safe. And I kept asking people, what's in the safe? And nobody could tell me what's in the safe. And so I asked, where's the key to the safe? And nobody knew where the key to the safe was. So I finally thought, what I probably need to do is probably need to take the safe to a locksmith or something. And I picked up the safe, and I'm carrying it out of the room, and it slipped out of my hands, and it fell on the ground, and it burst open. My first thoughts were, that's not a very good safe, is it? <laughs> My second thought is I needed to look what was in it. And I found some interesting things. It was a book for the original minutes of the original meetings that they had in Duxbury 150 years ago. It was a bill of sale for the bell. The bell that's over 150 years old that's going to be moved to our memorial garden here. Really cool thing. And then I saw the plans for the original building. 150-year-old plans for the original building that was built. And I started thinking about that. Those must be good plans because that building is still standing. And not only is that building still standing, that building is still in really good shape, and it's probably going to be around for at least another 150 years once we're done using it and someone else takes possession of it. That's a pretty good plan. Then I thought about the dorm that I went to my freshman year in college. It was a really cool dorm. It was round and it was really neat looking. It had these pie-shaped rooms, and I loved my dorm. And it was probably five years old when I moved into it. And about five years after I was done being at that college, they had to rip the dorm down because there was something wrong with the way that they built the dorm, and it had a problem, and that dorm is no longer there. I guess the plans make all the difference, don't they? 
If you have the proper plans and you build something that's built to last, it will last. Getting the point? What's your life built on? What's my life built on? What's Faith Community Church built on? What's our community built on? What's America built on? If we don't understand building on the right foundation with the right plans, we're going to be like the dorm that gets ripped down rather than the building that continues to be used from generation to generation. Do I get an amen? It's how we build our lives. And that's what Joshua wants the people to understand. Okay, we're going to take possession of this land, but we need to do it God's way. So let's begin by understanding we need to know God's words that will not depart from our mouth so that we can meditate on them day and night. When we learn God's word, Joshua says, we start thinking God's thoughts. And we start seeing the world from a different perspective. Because if the only thing that Christians can do in the 21st century is be a poor imitation of secular thinking, this world does not need us. We don't need to just be one more negative naysayer arguing in the pantheon of modern thought. That's why in our family, we've sought from the time the children are little to teach them the scripture and and teach them to know God and to love God and to have a relationship with Jesus. And I was talking to Regina about my sermon this last week, and she reminded me that she spent a lot more time doing bedtime than I did, and then she started talking to me about the stuff that she used to do at bedtime with our children and how she'd always tell a Bible story. And then she had a song. I'm not going to sing the song to you because I don't sing very well. But the point of the song was to reinforce in the children's minds the importance of God's word and knowing God and trusting God. And no matter what, you could trust God. And now she tells me she can call our youngest son up on the phone and she can start the song and he will finish it. The song that he learned when he was a two-year-old as a child as his mother taught him the scriptures every night before he went to bed. And I was talking to David and Lauren. They say, you know, we don't sing the same song, but we use the same formula with our children. Teach the Bible, teach the story, have the prayer, have a song that reinforces it. Why? Because that works. Because Joshua tells us that if we're going to build families and we're going to build lives and we're going to build churches and we're going to build communities and we're going to be the nation of Israel taking possession of something, we better do it with the right plans. If we want success, let's begin God's way, not our way. Then Joshua says, remember, thinking isn't the same thing as doing. Just because we get the right thoughts doesn't mean the battle is won. And here, too, Christians get in trouble. Because we learn the scripture, we think the godly thoughts, and then we do nothing. Or we don't learn the scripture, we don't do things God's way, and we rush in where angels fear to tread. And how many times have Christians done that, where we just take off blindly and things don't work out for us? Be careful, verse 8 says, to do according to all that is written in God's word. Do you hear that? Be careful to what? Do. Be careful to do all that's written in it. Joshua knew that the people had failed and they'd wandered for 40 years. They were an object lesson. 
He's like, you guys want to know what it means to do things your own way? Hey, the last 40 years. Now, Joshua was a young guy. Put the time together. 40 years later, guy's got to be my age. If he was 20 then, he's 60 now. And he's sitting around going, hey, I remember 40 years ago when, jo when Caleb and I told you, let's go do things God's way. We've been wandering for 40 years. Let's finally do things God's way. But let's do it. It's about doing. It's about getting active. It's about putting into practice our faith. How do I put into practice my faith, Pastor Stan? Well, how about read God's word? Okay, that's doing. How about praying? Okay, I'll pray. How about volunteering for vacation Bible school? My church needs volunteers for VBS. I've got a bunch of kids who are going to be coming to Faith Community Church. I can do that. There's outreach opportunities that my church has. I'll volunteer there. There's other things that are happening in our community that needs good Christian people to step up and get involved with. We complain when we see things in our society that we don't like. Are we involved? Are we active? Are we the volunteers? Are we the ones who are getting in there? It's all in God's word. You want to make a difference in this world? Think God's thoughts and do God's work. Share God's love with others. Witness to our faith. Once we start doing, we start realizing God's blessing in our life. The problem with the children of Israel is for 40 years they had thought the wrong things and they'd done the wrong things. It's kind of like Calvin and Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin was a little six-year-old, if you know the cartoon script. And there's little Calvin at his mom's coffee table. Whap, whap, whap. Calvin, what are you doing to the coffee table? He sits and looks at it. Is this some kind of trick question or what? He knows perfectly well what he's doing. He's putting nails into the coffee table. Why not? He has no plan. He's a six-year-old. He's not thinking. He's not planning. He's just having fun. But some days that's what we do as Christians. Rather than having a plan and knowing where we're headed, we just start nailing nails into a coffee table and wonder what's wrong with that. Yes, the Israelites had literally pounded nails into a coffee table for 40 years. They'd wandered in the desert doing things their own way, kind of like we do in our lives. We just go, and we just move, and we're doing our own thing, and we don't understand why God's not blessing us. And God says, learn my word. Learn a different perspective. Learn to realize that God has a claim on our lives. And then when we do, we discover that doing is work. And, and creating things. For Joshua, even thinking the right thoughts was not enough. The people had to do God's work according to God's plan. Yes, in 1979, I had rushed in without a plan. I realized years later that's what the problem was. It wasn't only my fear when people gave a negative response to my young enthusiasm of doing my version of a contemporary worship service. I didn't know what I was doing. I consulted with no one. I talked to no one. I hadn't prepared anybody for anything. I just stood up and thought this was a good idea. 2005, I revisited the plan. Only this time, we began with prayer. And I said, God, if I'm going to start getting involved with new things in worship, I better make sure you're the center of all of it. And then I started getting training. I went to Ginghamsburg United Methodist Church that had been a four, 
front in the Methodist churches around contemporary worship, and I even went to Willow Creek in Chicago to get training. I then studied the history of worship in America. I found books on the history of, of worship and how it had changed over the years and how people had resisted. And I discovered things like, did you know that the Puritans didn't like hymns? Do you know if you came to Colonial Plymouth and you tried to bring in a hymn, you would have gotten kicked out and they would have sent you back on a boat to England? I didn't know that before. The only thing that they did is they used a psalm book and the, the cantor would stand up front and would sing a line out of the psalms and you repeated it. They said the psalms weren't even very well translated. And people tried to bring hymns into the church and they said, no way, not here in a colonial America. The first time a hymnal was printed in America was 100 years later by a radical printer from Philadelphia. We know him as Ben Franklin. I can just see the smirk on Ben Franklin's face. Guy wasn't even a Christian. He must have had a lot of fun. He goes, I'll show them Christians how to do something new. Resistance is nothing new around worship. It didn't get invented in the 1970s with what we call the modern worship wars. People have always resisted when God does something new and something different. And so it took me an opportunity to get prepared and to start doing things God's way. I did a Bible study on worship, and then I put together a worship team, and then we started praying. And the worship team we put together had people who had been in a worship band before. But the problem is we needed a guitarist. It was really kind of funny. We had a drummer, a bass player, we had a keyboardist, but we had no guitarist. So we stood up on Sunday morning and we said, we'd like to announce to this congregation, this was in my last church, that we're starting a worship team and we need a guitarist. And at the moment that announcement was made through, a guy named Russ came walking through the church, had never been in the church before. He said for 15 years he thought of coming over to that church. And he finally, that morning, at that moment, walked into the worship service, heard the announcement, saw somebody that he knew, sat down beside the person and said, I didn't know you came to this church. The person looked at him and goes, Russ, what are you doing here? He said, I thought I'd check out your church. The woman said to him, did you hear the announcement? They need a guitarist. Do you play guitar? He said, yes, I heard it. I'm your new guitarist. It's amazing how God blesses our plans when we do it God's way. It's not about worship, and it's not about the church, and it's not about the nation of Israel taking possession of the land. It's about listening to God and learning his word and putting into practice how he wants us to live our lives and realizing that we now get blessing. When we start doing, God always comes through. Amen? When we start doing, God always shows up. But then the problem is we need to understand what real success is. Because sometimes we settle for a cheap 21st century secular version of success. The Bible, however, puts it this way. You will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. I get it. We say at that moment, Pastor Stan gave me the secret to be wealthy. He's made it so that as long as I just do these few little things... I'll have more money than anybody else on my block, and I'll get to take the best vacations. That's really settling for a cheap imitation of worldly success. You see, the very words that are used in the Hebrew Scriptures to talk about success are not about financial success. They're different Hebrew words. 
The Israelites during Joshua's time didn't really have a lot of money. In fact, if we went back and we visited the people after they took possession of the land that was given to them, we'd look at them and say, you're, you're living in that little hut? And the people would say, yeah, isn't it awesome? God's blessed us. We were slaves in Egypt, and we get our own place here. We get to raise our children according to our faith, and we get to proclaim the God that is sovereign, who owns everything, and we trust him. We'd say, where's your cell phone? You see, a cell phone does not make us successful. A bigger car does not make us successful. And a bigger bank account does not make us successful. This is not about financial success and simply having a better version of what the world has. This is about real success and being real godly people whose lives are sold out for Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So we have integrity in our lives and we can look at ourselves in the mirror and feel good about who we are and know that we're trusting the one who owns us. However, too often we settle. That's why I want you to think about the people who have been positive in your life. Who are the Christians that you have known who have made a difference for you? Who are the people who have touched your lives? Was it because they owned more than someone else? Was it because they could take you on a better vacation than someone else? Or was it the quality of their life? Was it who they were as individuals because they had an understanding of who they were before God and were able to share that love unconditionally with you? That's what success is, folks. Which is why, as I was writing my sermon, I got thinking about my parents. My mom and dad grew up in Ontario and in Massachusetts. In a little place up in Hamilton, Ontario, my mom was raised in a Pentecostal church. Good-sized Pentecostal church, Delta Tabernacle. And as a young 12-year-old girl, she had learned to play the piano, and she heard about a little Nazarene mission that was starting in town, and they need a keyboardist. So my mom volunteered, and thus she became a Nazarene. My dad, however, was living in Quincy, Massachusetts, right behind Eastern Nazarene College. Now I have an Eastern Nazarene grad here. I'm telling you, I can take you to the place. There's a fence, and there's my dad's house. He was right on the border of Eastern Nazarene College on Franklin Street. He could look over and see the school. So when it came time for him to go to college, he decided to go to Eastern Nazarene College, and it was there my mom and dad met. And in 1942, they were married. In 1943, they had their first child. And life was going along really well, except for one problem, my oldest brother's health. And my mom and dad realized that they were very concerned because of all of the allergies and asthma that my brother had. And in 1943, they consulted the doctors who said to them, you need to get him away from Massachusetts. We don't think he's going to live. So they moved out to the Midwest, and they moved to Minnesota. The problem is, when they got to Minnesota, my brother's health didn't get any better. And so somebody made a suggestion, the doctor that they were seeing at that time, why don't you move to rural North Dakota? We think... It's a good place for your oldest son. Now, that's not such a crazy idea, because go check it out. Teddy Roosevelt had done the same thing. That's why Teddy Roosevelt National Park is in western North Dakota. So my mom and dad picked up, and they moved to Benedict, North Dakota. You've never heard of it, because it's a little town of about 40 people. They later moved to Moth, the spot that God forgot, but that's for another sermon. When they get to Benedict, North Dakota, Eventually, because it's such a small town and a little church, they were not able to pay my dad's salary, and so my dad 
ended up leaving the ministry. No college education, no seminary, and now he's out selling insurance. And one day, my dad meets somebody who was a Methodist district superintendent. And the Methodist heard that he had been a pastor and asked him on the spot, would you like a Methodist church? Now, you've got to understand, in the 1950s in rural North Dakota, Methodists, they'll take anybody. You can walk, you can breathe, you can talk, you can be a pastor. So my dad comes home that day and comes in and says, Lenora, something really interesting happened today. A Methodist district superintendent asked me if I wanted to be a Methodist pastor. And my mom started to cry because that day she'd listened to the radio and she had heard an evangelist who had shared these words, what's the desire of your heart that God's placed on there? Pray for it and God will bless you. And she said, Ralph, I've been praying all day that God would lead you back into the ministry. And a Methodist family was born. Now, if you look at my parents' illustrious years on the prairie, they were never successful by worldly standards. Eventually, my dad did go back to school. He didn't end up at Princeton where he had hoped to go. My dad was a brilliant man, and he had hoped to do his seminary education at Princeton. Instead, he got to go to more minor state, North Dakota, and eventually do the course of study through the Methodist Church. He never got a large church. He served two, three, sometimes even four churches at a time. One time he had a church that had three people. When I visited with him, the attendance went up 25%. That was church growth. But you know what he did? He had a deep and abiding faith as Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior, as did my mom. And they taught us as children to love God, and no matter what we faced, to know that we could face it no matter what happened in our life, to know that we could trust Jesus. And they were very proud of the fact that their family had been claimed for the gospel. They're proud of me as a pastor. They felt very good about that, but they're also very proud of my brother, who was a head elder of his church, or my oldest brother, who, remember, almost had died, who was active in the Episcopal Church, who became head of their vestry. Because to them, all that really mattered was to live for the gospel and to proclaim Christ as Lord and to raise a Christian family and share Christ's love with others. That's what Joshua's talking about. Joshua's not giving us a formula to become get-rich scheme 21st century. He's saying, take possession of what God has in front of you. Live for God, read his word, embrace his promises, and believe that God will come through and do it. Because as Christians, we get so discouraged and frustrated with everything else that's out there, and we start letting all the negative naysayers get in our brain, and that is not how God wants us to live our lives. This summer, we will see a group of people who are a little band of nomads, who had done it their own way and had wandered in the desert for 40 years and finally heard God say, go. What's amazing about Israel is not that they heard the words go and took possession of the land, but go check the ancient tribes. Run into any Hittites recently? How about Perizzites? Send any Cushites other than me? How about the Jebusites? Got any Jebusites here? But Israel's still around. Hear that, folks? You build the plan God's way, and you go from generation to generation, from year to year. The nation of Israel has withstood things we can't comprehend, including the Holocaust. But you know what? They listened to God. 
they finally took possession of the land. And what we are invited to do as Christians is to hear that same God speak to us, trust his word, give our lives fully to him in his way of living our lives, and to understand what true success is. I invite you this summer to read through the book of Joshua, to learn these lessons because they are given to us to inspire us and to help us to know that wherever we go, God is with us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that just as you called Joshua and Caleb to boldly trust in you when things seem so difficult and others said there are giants in the land who are beyond anything that we can comprehend, they trusted you and went forward. May we learn to do the same in our life in the areas that you have called us. In Christ's name we pray.